Hello, fellow pit stop philosophers. F1 brake check is back in action. Today, we're going to discuss the final three car launches of 2024, and we're going to dissect the technical details of all 10 cars with the enthusiasm of a cat chasing a laser pointer. Corey will have a new question for Stump the Pundit that will probably have me scratching my head. And because we love a good detour, we're slamming on the brakes to chat about our favorite cigars and other random obsessions. Buckle up, because F1 Brake Check is taking a smoke break. Welcome. You are listening to F1 Brake Check, the epic podcast for all things Formula One, where we discuss technology, history, news, and perspective. With your hosts, Scott Vick and Corey Green. All right, welcome back to F1 Break Check. With me, as always, is my intrepid co-host and partner in crime, Corey Brune. Corey, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. I was out in Europe for 10 days, landed yesterday, slept a little bit on a plane, not much, and then I went to bed at like 8.30, slept <laughs> like a baby all the way through, and I woke up at 3.30, could not go back to sleep. <laughs> so I've been up no, since 3.30. Just... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so jet lag is a thing, folks. You know, it's funny. It affects me a little bit going there, but it really affects me when I get back. The jet lag, it's it's really prominent, especially being in a mainland Europe, which is seven mm-hmm. hours difference from Texas, whereas like the UK, they're only six hours difference. Mm-hmm. So a little bit easier going over there. All right, so let's jump into the news. All right, so we had our final three car reveals of 2024. Uh, last week, we took and talked about all the reveals that had happened up to that point. So we had our final three with Mercedes, McLaren, and Red Bull all happening. Nothing really too spectacular about the reveals. They were all pretty subdued. McLaren making the choice to have their reveal at the technical center in walking. We had already seen the livery revealed for by McLaren for this year. Mercedes came out with their new livery on the new car, which is like, it seems to be the trend this year is much more of just the raw carbon fiber. And Red Bull stuck with their traditional like matte blue with the red and yellow accents to emblazoned for their parent company in Red Bull with the energy drinks. Your thoughts, Corey, on any of the final three launches for this year? Well, the launches themselves, just like you said, were were fairly subdued. So not much to really talk too much about there. But McLaren, I really, man, their livery, to me, I think beats all, well, the three that we're talking about. uh, We won't talk about Ferrari. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) By far, is still (laughs) my favorite. McLaren really is looking really nice. They really are. It looks really, really sweet. For those of you who know me fairly well, being an alumni of the University of Oklahoma, I usually have a propensity to hate the color orange, particularly the color burnt orange. Uh, But I got to say that I am really starting to love papaya orange. Yeah. (laughs) Papaya orange. Different. Yes, it's significantly different orange. So I'm I'm a little okay with it. All right, so let's take a quick technical deep dive into some of the various updates that we've seen with this year's car launches. One of the major trends has been the re-sculpting of the side pods and the radiator inlets to be much more reminiscent of the 2023 RB19. Most of the teams have elected to go with a horizontal opening for the radiator inlets and moved the radiator inlets much higher up onto the side pod so that it increased the downward sweep into the quote-unquote water slide 
which takes and helps maximize the airflow going around the sides of the car into the underside of the car to increase the amount of downforce produced by the car's floor. Now, one of the biggest notable differences, though, is that although everybody seemed to be chasing Red Bull this year, Red Bull went in a totally opposite direction and had a more vertical opening for their radiator inlets for the cooling, but they've mounted it much higher up, very reminiscent of what Mercedes did last year with their zero side pod. But instead of taking away the side pod like Mercedes tried to do, Red Bull has kept the full side pod, which I'm assuming is for the airflow management, because now by moving the radiator inlet from a horizontal position to a vertical position, it's now increased the downward sweep into the water slide area, which means more airflow going through the channel underneath the side pod, the more air going underneath the car. So therefore more air going into the diffuser and through the rear wing. So therefore creating more downforce on the rear wheels. Your thoughts? It looks amazing. I know they had some technical difficulties just a few days ago, but the design, if it's even half as fast as it looks, Nui has done his job yet again. It's going to yes. be an amazing year. I find it really interesting that Red Bull is really setting the standard where everybody went to one design for the most part. Red Bull is really going their own way. I really like that they're not hampered by what everybody else is doing or chasing what everybody else is doing. Nui's really looking at this from the ground up saying, what else can we do here? How can we make this better? It's just, he's not resting on his laurels and he's taking, he's willing to take massive chances. I guarantee you that all of this stuff has all been run through simulators and through, yeah. you know, the wind tunnel yeah. and everything. He was definitely willing to buck even his own right. convention from last year. Exactly. And construct a car that is in some respects is radically different. Right. Because one of the things, too, that unlike a lot of the other teams, because like Mercedes last year and this year McLaren, inside of the in the side pod is a side impact beam that is mandated by the FIA for crash structure. And most of the teams last year had that beam was somewhat lower into the side pod. Well, with all of them going to the horizontal opening, for the radiator inlet, they've moved that beam up higher. And in the case of McLaren, it's actually now part of the aerodynamic package. Whereas yeah. with Red Bull, they even bucked their own trend from last year exactly. and put the side impact beam by going to the vertical slit. They were actually able to bring the side beam down yeah. closer to the floor and thus lowering the center of gravity for that side impact structure notable updates were now Sauber and Alpine all both unveiled their cars with much, much larger roll hoop air intake structures. I believe it was Alpine that their air intake was significantly larger and it used the same, for lack of a better term, the same A structure that a number of the other teams have started using. If you're looking at the inside of the air intake, there's like two vertical structures right there that's supposed to take and help channel the air as it flows into the power unit. Alpine also showed off a completely rearranged pushrod geometry on the rear end. What they did is they took and they moved the, the mounting points for the pushrods. According to 
the technical director is it's supposed to improve the airflow through the beam wing on the rear wing that's supposed to help increase with downforce uh, on the rear wing. There's so many changes in all these cars. I'm so excited about this coming year. I just can't wait. I never really pay attention to technical difficulties or anything like that, or even preseason for the most part, because that's just the engineers looking at what they need to fine tune and everything like that. So I look at it, but I don't put a lot of stock into it. Just like in American football, when you're watching preseason, you're not really watching the team. You're watching who's going to get cut, basically, right? So exactly. It's just out there to see what's happening, what they need to fine tune, what they need to change. And that's about it. So a couple other quick discussion points is that Alpine seemed to have the most major updates of their car over last year, because in addition to what we've already talked about with the updated geometry on the suspension and the roll hoop changes, they also took made massive changing on the brake cooling ducts, the floor which of course nobody can see, but according to their press release and everything during the launch, they said that they had made major changes to the floor that would significantly increase the downforce generated by the underbody wings. And also the front wing aerodynamics were also dramatically changed. And then we'll just go ahead and touch on a couple of the other major things that we saw. We saw a complete restructuring of Aston Martin's nose. Uh, They've gone to a much more Red Bull-like nose where the leading edge of the wing protrudes much more from the end of the nose structure, much like Red Bull had on their car last year. A lot of the other teams, they have it so that the leading edge of the front wing is actually much closer to the leading edge of the nose cone section. According to AMR, it's supposed to have made a dramatic change in the way that the air flows up and over the front end of the car and as it gets channeled around the sides. We also saw a major change in Williams, AMR, and Mercedes. In addition to providing the power units to Aston Martin and to Williams, they're also this year providing the gearboxes as well. By using the Mercedes gearbox, AMR and Williams are also using Mercedes Mounting points for the suspension, which the Mercedes took and did a significant geometry change in the pushrod suspension for the rear end of the car, much like Red Bull has done and a lot of the other teams have also done as well. That seems to be the optimum suspension layout seems to be to use pull rods on the front and push rods on the back. And it seems like most of the teams have gone to a very similar systems. One of the last things that I wanted to talk about though, was with the Red Bull is in addition to Nui completely even bucking his own trends is additionally, one of the things that has blown me away in the last couple of years with formula one is the absolute miniaturization of the radiators and the cooling yeah formula one cars from even six or seven years ago and the radiator inlets were significantly larger the last couple of years with the current iteration of the rules the power units are so efficient in their heat dissipation that the radiators are just absolutely minute in comparison that efficiency is that being driven from their net zero is that all part that's of part of it? Yes. Yeah. 
when Formula One went to its current power unit regulations a few years ago, that was a big reason why they went to the turbocharged V6 engines. And by shrinking it down, it's also reduced the amount of materials that have to go into the power units. 2026, that's uh, coming up real quick. We'll have one more year of the current power regulations, and then we'll go into 2026. Whole new massive set of rule changes, which is supposed to be even more reducing materials, carbon footprint, improving reliability, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All right, then. So let's move on to Stump the Pundits. So for those of you who haven't listened to the last couple episodes, and by all means, go back and listen to them. This is a new segment that we started a few weeks ago where Corey will ask me a trivia question. Last week, we did the top four youngest drivers to win a championship, not to win a race, but a whole championship. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this week, I thought, well, we did the youngest. Let's do the oldest. Top five. Now, it gets a little tricky because there's one person that owns the spot of five of the oldest people to win a championship but so we'll take just talking through top five oldest drivers to win a championship in any order. all right well number five you've already given it away it's michael schumacher because it, it, when he won his last no really interesting that mm-hmm. is shocking because the way that you you prefaced it i was for sure that it was because michael schumacher was i want to say 24 or 25 when he won his first championship But that was in 1994, and then he won his last championship, and I believe it was either 2006 or 2007, which would have put him in his late 30s. So that's why I would have thought that it would have been Michael Schumacher. And I'm willing to bet money, though, now that having talked it through, he may not be number five, but I got a sneak suspicion he's one of the ones that's on this list. No, he's not actually, but he's close. So he won his last championship at the age of 35. And seven okay, months. then my next guess for number five would be Nige, Nigel Mansell. Yep. That's it. Okay, yeah. well, he won his championship in 1993, and at the ripe old age of, I want to say he was 37, 38, something like that. Close, 39, and it was actually okay. 1992 he won his pros. You're right, won it in 93. 93 is when Mansell won the IndyCar championship. To this day, he is the only driver to ever hold both the Formula One and IndyCar championships at the same time. He was almost on his birthday. He was 39 years old and eight days. Going up from that, I'll give you a hint. He won it in 1968. 1968. So 68 would have been... Number four, would it be... Jackie Stewart? No. No. Go ahead. Graham Hill. Okay. He was also... So Graham Hill, and he would have been 41? Close again. He was 39 and eight months, so almost 40. Okay. Number three. So we've got Nigel Mansell, Graham Hill. Number three would be... I want to say Prost, but I don't think that's right. I want to say Prost won his, he was still in his 30s when he won his fourth championship. I'm stumped. Who was number three? Number three, actually, he owns, he, he's won it many times, all in his older age. It's Juan Manuel Fangio. Fangio. 
He won it in 1951 at 40 years mm -hmm. old. He won it again in 1954 at 43. And he won it consecutively from 1955, 56, and 57, where he was obviously 44, 45, and 46 years old. He is the oldest wow. person to win a championship so far. Then so, we have a, we have two more on the list at 1966. Okay, so let's see, 66. I don't know. I'm you got me. Yeah, I'm just surprised at how well you know the the ages and everything. So it's Jack Branham. He was 40 years old in five months. And I have okay. one other one, one last one, in 1950. So he basically broke up Fangio's consecutive wins. And that would be Ascari, Alberto Ascari. No, Giuseppe. Fried. Yes. He was 43 years old and 10 months. So almost 44. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> but it just goes to show you that there's still hope. Everybody has said, when is Alonzo going to hang it up? Yeah. But I think that Alonzo is going to be definitely one of those drivers that, I mean, he just turned 40. If Fangio could win one at 46 years old, then I don't see any reason why Alonzo couldn't win one at 42, 43 years old. Right. So, I, you know, I think that if there's any driver on the grid right now who could possibly do it, it would definitely be him. Yeah. You know, I've talked about this off air a few times, but regardless of the sport, how much more training that they're doing now, how much more aware they are of their diet. How much more exercise. athleticism they have. Yes, exactly. Versus back in the 50s. And if they were able to do this in the 50s with no DRS, you know, without all the people talking to them about strategy and everything else, if they were able to do that in the 50s at 46 years old, there's no doubt in my mind that Alonzo, especially knowing what a phenomenal driver he is, there's no doubt in my mind he's, he's not able to win. There's no way that, given the car, he will make champion, no doubt about it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like you were saying, nowadays, the drivers, their training regiments, yes. their nutrition is looked after. They actually have, you know, full-time coaches who travel with them. You think about back in those times, it was like smoking was considered not right. a big deal. And there are some very famous photos of guys sitting in the cockpit of the car, literally 30, 40, 50 gallons of fuel strapped around them on each side of them and they're sitting there in the car with a yeah. cigarette in their mouth in plain clothes <laughs> you know, with basically a helmet on yeah yeah exactly <laughs> there is another wonderful podcast that i listen to ross bentley who is a former indy car driver and he is now a professional race driving coach so he coaches a number of young drivers both in indy car and in imsa one of the things that he said in one of their podcasts a while back was training the driver to be able to segment their bandwidth for lack of a better term and that the really great drivers are able to not just focus on driving the car at a very high level but at the same time they are able to do 10 other things at the same time Alonzo being a perfect case, as we saw in Miami, where Alonzo is flying along in the car. He was third at that point in the race. He is trucking right along, solid podium finish. 
and everything. And he's watching the Jumbotron and sees his teammate make a very impressive overtaking maneuver. And he comes in on the radio and says, Stroll just made an amazing pass. Good job on him. Alonzo is from a athletic and mental standpoint is literally top two, three drivers on the grid no doubt. Uh, today because of his ability. Not only is he able to at, run his own race, but he can also run your race for you as well at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the things that makes Alonzo so freaking oh, yeah. amazing at 41 years old that he's able to still at perform at such a high yeah. and, and shows no sign of slowing down. Exactly. You know, no sign whatsoever. This is something that can't really be taught. This is something that either you have or you don't. And this is something that somebody like Alonzo, Hamilton's not very vocal, but he he definitely has that same ability as well as Max. There's no doubt about yes. it. He's he oh yeah has absolutely. I think he and Hamilton are the same where they like to keep everything in. Whereas Alonzo is like, I don't care. I'll tell you, <laughs> you're not going to yeah. win against me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take, we're going to pump the brakes. And this is our last episode of our first season. We will start season two next week with the advent of preseason training. So Corey and I decided to kind of take a little bit of a break from our history lesson slash technical lesson this week. And we're going to kind of go off topic. So this week, what we're going to do is as most of you who have been listening for a while, or maybe you didn't know, this entire podcast was born out of Corey and I hanging out in real life at Industrial Cigars in Frisco, Texas. We get together about once a month, have dinner, and then we will take we will go to Industrial Cigars, which is probably one of the best cigar lounges, not just in Texas, but probably in the entire country. And it was sitting around over cigars and whiskey that we would talk Formula One. And where we came up with the bright idea of, you know, hey, we really enjoy talking about Formula One. A lot of these conversations are really kind of cool that maybe other people would like to listen to them. So that's how we decided to start recording podcasts and stuff about Formula One. Going back to our roots now, instead of talking about Formula One at this point in the show, we're going to talk cigars. So if I figured we would take and we would talk about four things. So I've got four questions for you. So number one. The best cigar you've ever enjoyed in your entire life at any point. Number two, your favorite cigar of all time, which may not necessarily be the best one that you've ever had, but it's definitely your favorite. But more than likely, it probably is. Number three is your favorite, quote unquote, everyday cigar. And then your favorite libation to enjoy with your cigar. So, Corey, I'm going to let you go first. So what's the best cigar that you've ever enjoyed? Number one and number two are are tightly coupled together for me. It's the the Byron and any of their lines. Honestly, I I have not had a bad one. They're all phenomenal. Their major drawback is they are expensive, and by expensive <laughs> I mean by you know forty dollars on up. Sometimes they can get fairly yes. pricey, but the level of the construction of the scar, the consistency of the smoke all the way through is just, it's unparalleled in, in my book, at least. So that is by far number one and number two. As far as the number three, it's funny. We, like Scott said, we go to industrial and I have yet to have, I'm sure they have them, 
but I have yet to have a bad cigar, an everyday cigar there. Every day, I would say my range at least would be anywhere from 10 to 15 maybe $18, stretching it a little bit, but that would be my everyday type cigar. The everyday would be the La Habana. It was, it's a great cigar. And again, it, it fits your price range or fits my price range, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. it, it's a great cigar. It smokes very consistently all the way through as well. And then my favorite libation of all time is a Scotch whiskey from Jameson. If you go to the factory, there is a whiskey that is only sold at the factory. That is by far my favorite. If I don't have that, then I like to have Jameson Black Label with said cigars. How about you, Scott? Nice. All right. Number one, the best cigar that I've ever had. And the reason why it's number one is because it was an amazing smoke. But the other thing is, is that you will never find it ever again. So that's the reason why it had to go. Uh, that's the reason why I separated them as favorite cigar and the best cigar you've ever enjoyed. So the best cigar I've ever enjoyed was the Partagas 150. Back in the early 90s, after the Cuban embargo in the 60s, when John F. Kennedy signed the embargo against Cuba, which then disallowed any products from Cuba to be sold in the United States. Partagas, Punch, uh, Monte Cristo, all of these labels that were had factories in Havana, other companies set up shops and were able to use that same name. So there's the Partagas that you can get in Cuba, and then there's the Partagas that comes out of the Dominican Republic. So the Partagas 150 was a special edition that the Partagas in the Dominican Republic released when they found several bales of tobacco that were in their curing barn that had been forgotten about. So these bales of tobacco had been aging in their aging barn instead of the normal six to eight years that they normally were aging it. I want to say it was probably close to 30 or 40 years old bales of tobacco. And so they released these very special limited edition cigars for the 150th anniversary of the Partagas name. And so I bought one, a Churchill sized cigar. They were $20 a piece, which at that time was an astronomical price. I mean, it's like what you were yeah. talking about, the right. Byron's now that are 40 to $50. That's what the Partagas 150 was back then. A standard cigar would have been five, six bucks like the Partagas number 10 or the Hoyo de Monterey Excalibur number one, which were like your flagship cigars. They were five, six, seven dollars. So for to spend $20 for a single stick back then, that was big money. I bought it and put it away in my humidor and I kept it for a very special occasion. And so I smoked it on my 21st birthday. It was just an amazing cigar. I still dream about that cigar. It was so good. But like I said, because they were so limited and so hard to find that they've all been long since bought up. Even if you can find them, they're so ridiculously expensive that there's no way that you'd probably want to ever smoke it. So that was the best cigar that I've ever had. So my favorite cigar in the whole world right now is the Arturo Fuente Chateau Fuente Sun Grown, which is just a 
fantastic cigar. I love that cigar. It's my favorite one. It's kind of my go-to for special occasions and things like that. And then my favorite everyday cigar is the Punch Bare Knuckle, which is just another fantastic cigar. One of the things that you and I have talked about is because I've been smoking cigars almost as long as I've been watching Formula One, I went through the first cigar boom that happened in the early 90s where very few people were smoking cigars and then all of a sudden it was very trendy. It was very much the hot thing and it, the old brands like Punch and Partagas and Macanudo became very, very hard to find and also every Tom, Dick, and Harry was trying to release a cigar to get in on the craze. And there was a lot of crap that was pushed out into the marketplace and everything. So I have a tendency to stick to a lot of the old school brands, if you will. So right. La Gloria Cubana, Punch, things like that. So that's the reason why the Punch has always been a phenomenal cigar. And I've always been a big fan of theirs. So that's kind of my everyday cigar. My favorite libation to enjoy with my cigars. I do like a good whiskey. I much prefer either Scotch or Irish whiskey. Also, I do like a good gin. Good yeah, gin and right. tonic with a cigar, depending upon what kind of cigar that I'm smoking. So if it's a much more full-flavored, robust cigar, then I prefer Scotches and mm -hmm. Irish whiskeys. Mm -hmm. But if it's a lighter cigar or something like that, then yeah, good gin and tonic. Of course, you can't go wrong with a beer. Being in Texas right now, we're kind of going through a really great craft beer revolution where we actually have a number of breweries in and around the Dallas-Fort Worth area that are producing some really outstanding beers that go together just absolutely perfect with cigars. But I got to give another shout out to Industrial Cigars is their staff is so knowledgeable and well-versed on what cigars that they have and the tasting of various cigars that you can go in there, show them, you know, hey, I'm having this beer tonight and they will come up with the perfect pairing for whatever you have to be drinking that night. So shout out to them. And we've done yeah. that many times. Yes. All right then. So I think we've uh, done enough damage for today. What do you think, Corey? I think so. All right. So the track has gone cold and Corey and I are going to head for the hospitality suite to watch all of the preseason testing action from Bahrain. We're going to smoke a few cigars. We're going to drink a few drinks and we'll be back next week with the first episode of our second season of the podcast. We'll break down all of the happenings from testing and we'll dive into the history importance of preseason testing and what goes into a successful session. So until next time, let's go. Thank you for listening to F1 Great Show. If you have enjoyed what you heard, don't miss a single episode by hitting that subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Also, help us grow by sharing us with your friends and fellow F1 fans. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, TikTok and exit F1 Breakcheck. Our website is f1breakcheck.com, where you will find links to all our content. We value your passion and your feedback, so please take a moment to review our podcast. Your reviews help us grow and improve, and it means the world to us. Share your thoughts, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show experience even better. F1 Break Check is a production of Break Check Media. For your hosts, Scott Vick and Corey Green, until next time keep yourself inside track limits, and try not to pitch it in the kitty litter.